This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or advance their career in ag tech or agribusiness, I would love to talk to them. Just send me an email, tim at aggrad.com. This show is still a part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. So if you like ag podcasts, blogs, and vlogs, head over to farmruralag.com and check out some great ones over there. Well, if you've been on this journey with me through 140-ish or so episodes. Uh, first of all, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, but but also, you, it won't come as a surprise to you that a lot of these episodes is just me following my own curiosity. In fact, I would argue that the best episodes we've done have just been started with a question I had about this industry and specifically about some aspect of, of agricultural innovation. And that is kind of the vein I want to continue and, and that you'll experience with me if you stick with me here throughout this year is just what questions do I have or what's on my mind when it comes to ag innovation. So you're going to notice early this year, we're, we're going to get several guests on the show that are from the investment community because what's been heavy on my mind about ag tech and ag innovation lately is how much it's driven through the narrative of the investment community. So what do investors, the people with the money that can fund innovation, what are they thinking about? What's important to them? What's on their mind? Because I have done several episodes talking about the gap between ag tech companies and producers or, or people working in the industry that they serve. Uh, but I think that we have missed a little bit on the, the real gap here, which is what investors believe they're investing in when they put millions of dollars into ag innovation um, and what the industry needs. And are those needs always aligned? Is the money going in for innovation that's backing some of these companies always aligned with the problems that really, really need to be solved? And so I think this is an just a really, really interesting uh, topic to explore. So you may be wondering as you hear several uh, guests on the show from the investment community, you know, is this turning into more like an investment, ag investment show? And, and no, n not really, uh, but it is a, an attempt to try to understand um, the money that, that drives the innovations that we like to talk about here on the show. So excited about this episode as, as part of that. I'm not going to call it a series, uh, but definitely trying to answer some questions related to in, in investing in ag innovation and uh, sort of where what that money is thinking about as it as it pours into to our industry. So very happy to have on the show Matt Zieger. Uh, Matt is the VP and head of U.S. Ventures at Village Capital. You may remember Village Capital. They were a part of our Accelerating Ag Tech series this past fall. Uh, we had Alex Arriviaga on the show to talk about their program in one of our follow-up Friday episodes. Uh, but Village Capital finds, trains, and invests in entrepreneurs solving real world, world problems. Uh, they are proud to build communities around the, their entrepreneurs uh, and actually allow the entrepreneurs in their program, at least their accelerator program, 
to decide which company to invest in through through kind of their cohort. But they they look at problems related to, of course, agriculture, but also education, energy, financial services, health, um, and even s- some other um, uh, industries as well. Uh, but but Matt is, like I said, uh, the VP and head of U.S. Ventures there at Village Capital. He leads the firm's efforts to transform how the U.S. market finds, trains, and invests in entrepreneurs solving problems in economic opportunity, environmental sustainability. So anyway, I found this episode really interesting. Uh, Village Capital had sent me a copy of a PDF that we can have linked in the show notes here. And one thing that stood out to me is um, their claim that actually what agriculture might not need in a lot of circumstances is the Silicon Valley style disruption. So I wanted to bring Matt on the show and ask him about that. Here is my interview with Matt Zeger after a very long introduction. I hope you don't mind. VP and head of U.S. Ventures at Village Capital. Matt Zeger, VP and head of U.S. Ventures at Village Capital. Thank you for being on the Future of Agriculture podcast, sir. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's great to be here. Well, maybe just for starters, if we pick up picked up any listeners since Alex was on last fall, uh, could you just give everybody a, a high-level overview of what is Village Capital? Sure, that's great. Village Capital is a, a hybrid organization that focuses on supporting entrepreneurs, but it does it in a couple different ways. So we actually have a for-profit investment arm and also a nonprofit accelerator program. So we focus on, on companies that are solving important problems in the world. So we, we find, train, and invest in those companies from also non-traditional geographies. We really spend a lot of time looking for companies in places that are outside of San Francisco, Boston, and New York. Um, so uh, we look for companies that are that are often led by people with some lived experience in an industry. So generally, we believe entrepreneurs can solve really important problems in the world if we look to democratize entrepreneurship. So we do that in a lot of different ways. Hmm. C- could you expand on that just a little bit more about w- some of the ways that you democratize entrepreneurship? Yeah, so we, we think of ourselves really as more of an innovator in entrepreneurial support. So we spend a lot of time trying out new ways to support entrepreneurs trying out new ways to identify entrepreneurs and even trying out new ways to invest in entrepreneurs and even looking into really non-traditional subsectors within industries that we think are underserved that really matter in in society in some way. So an example of that is the the way that our program works for investment historically has been that the companies themselves that go through the program and the accelerator actually select who receives investment. So we call it peer selection process. So we first spend a lot of time training entrepreneurs to be investors themselves and to think of their company like an investor. Um, and we think that actually has a, a lot of outcomes that we can, we've had a, a third party research along with us to prove out that it, that it not only produces better companies in the end of the day, um, but it really also helps the, the founder become a better entrepreneur by thinking of themselves as an investor. And, and what brought Village Capital to the food system? Has the food system always contained some problems that Village Capital was interested in seeing solved? Uh, or was that a, a very deliberate initiative to, uh, to target the food system at, uh, as a place where we could solve some interesting problems? Yeah, I think uh, Village Capital's been in the ag space for, um, in an in ag accelerator for probably one of the longest running ag accelerators in the country. Um, and we were about 10 years old, and I think the, even the earliest programs uh, often incorporated an agricultural component. So we typically focus on, on sectors that really matter in society. So things like educational technology, uh, things like financial services for underserved communities, and certainly agriculture is such a bedrock industry in the world and that we think it's uh, certainly important enough to try to both find entrepreneurs that are solving problems that are undersolved, 
um, but also really find ways to democratize innovation and entrepreneurship throughout you know, such a crucial industry. So uh, again, I think we look at industries that have um, abnormal societal benefit or a kind of disproportional societal benefit. Um, so other, other things might include energy, looking at ways to produce energy more sustainably, but ag has always been really a core part of our work for the last 10 years. Very cool. And, and Matt, you and I were talking before we hit record here, and I was telling you that this uh, report you all recently put out um, called Growing Sustainable Food Systems, you, you know, caught my eye because a lot of the themes were consistent with what we talk about in the show, everything from precision agriculture uh, to, you know, food waste to all of the problems associated with, with the food system. But one, one spot in particular caught my eye, which is a little, a little section on one of the pages that just said, Silicon Valley disruption is not always the answer. And, and that was consistent with some thoughts I'd been having recently, but I was hoping maybe you could just expand a little bit on that and maybe even provide an example or two if you have one. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm glad you. I'm glad that that stuck out to you because I think we think about that all the time. When you know, venture capital is an important model, but it's not the only model. And and oftentimes in industries that are really crucial to society, it can be quite disruptive. And that term, even disruptive, is thrown around a lot. And I think generally disruption, when when uh, someone says it in the the kind of Silicon Valley or venture space, what they mean is displacement. Um, so you look at what's a quintessential example of this is Uber and Lyft and what they've done to the taxi industry or even Airbnb and what that's done to the hotel industry, that it's creating a new and different channel that a consumer can go around the, a former legacy industry and, and have a different experience or a different product. Um, and I think what we see in, in really highly regulated or complex and really foundational industries in the world, so you look at things like education access or, or certainly agriculture, uh, displacement is not what we want, right? We don't want destruction of the old structure. We, we have 2 million plus farms in the United States that are not going away. You know, they need to be, uh, they need to have appropriate technology that's supportive of small and medium-sized farms that are really the bedrock of our agricultural economy and our food systems. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about vertical farms and about lab-grown meats and about other things that are really kind of quintessentially disruptive technologies. But at the end of the day, those are not going to be the majority of our food systems. Those are going to be always marginal activities that might be important to some consumers, but they're not going to fundamentally displace the, the, the modern American farm. So we, we really work on and look for technologies and entrepreneurs that that deeply understand and support small and medium farmers and it, making technology more accessibility uh, tech accessible for those farmers and not only to make the business models of those farms work again, uh, but also to make those farms more environmentally sustainable. Great. And, and on the on the for-profit side of, of the business that you do, obviously, you've got to provide a return on the investments you make. I would think if you're talking about uh, technologies that aren't necessarily necessarily disruptive, the downside is the returns might not be there. You know, you may not be investing in unicorns. How, how do you balance that part? Well, I wouldn't say that's always the case. I think that, that returns are a spectrum for for any industry. And so I think what, but what you do see is that the, the model of venture capital is not always applicable in, in every space. And so, you know, venture capital generally is about growth uh, at, at a very high speed. So they call it blitz scaling often or something where you have to, you have to achieve market domination in, in order to be profitable. And often that leads to kind of a monopolistic behavior. And that's not always the best for the end user. And so for a, a, a traditional industry or really foundational industry like ag, the, the farm, the models that work for, for agriculture might have to be slightly slower growth in the earlier stages to, to achieve that, that longer scale impact and that, that, that slow change that has to happen throughout a large uh, and decentralized industry like, like agriculture. So, you know, an, an example of this is we have a, a company 
um, Spensa Technologies that we invested in um, early on um, back in 2013. But w- we have a non-traditional way of even doing investments. So we don't e- only always just take equity investments. That we do sometimes also start with a revenue-based investment. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of transition in, in the investor world around non-traditional and, and more founder-friendly ways of investing that are not always just about that that uh, you know 10 or 100x return expectation that you're, you're looking at more slower growth revenue-based models where you're helping a company um, really w- work out its product market fit. And then uh, so for Spensa, a precision agriculture company that's based out in Indiana, we were going through early customer validation and market development with them through a revenue-based financing agreement that gave them runway to grow at a pace that wasn't, you know, wouldn't might have traditionally fit with a traditional VC. But then we came in after they were able to repay us on that first investment and, and help them raise a Series A, which we participated in. Um, so that SaaS model could grow at the speed it needed to grow at and not um, just grow for growth's sake early on, which probably would have um, killed the business model. So th- these kind of creative new ways of, of investment that are really friend- friendly um, for the company, uh, I think always pan out, can pan out better in the end. So, you know, for Wexis, for Spensa, what that did is it actually allowed them to be acquired by DTN uh, later in their in their life when uh, early on, if we were to thought about them as a, as a traditional VC play, that might not have happened. Okay. And for, for the non-investment minded in the audience, when you say revenue based, does that mean uh, the agreement is instead of taking any equity in their company, you would just take uh, a certain percentage of the revenues until you're paid back? Is that right? That's right. That's the basic model behind it. Okay. And then, and then help us understand on the DTN. So how come uh, they were able to get acquired by DTN in the revenue model, but they may not have been in the VC model? So for uh, a company that's, that's early on, I think if you, if you need, um, you need a, a bit of cash and you need to actually really figure out your product market fit and slowly grow into a market. So in the agricultural space, this is a, a good example, I think, where um, you you don't want um, a company that doesn't have that early product market fit racing too cl- too quickly into a market. You really need them to work that out and to have them understand their consumer base really closely and be able to to grow at kind of a more appropriate speed. And I think what we're seeing in, in a lot of different business models is that that that. Uh, investment actually drives business model, which really not shouldn't be the case. That that the, the business model should be something that the entrepreneur is supported to really understand the product and the consumer, of the the customer of that business, that that product should be what drives the the, the general structure of the business. And so, um, we we think there are lots of different creative things happening in the market uh, in the early stage investment world that allows more uh, founder options, basically more options for different speeds of growth and different ways of building market knowledge and product market fit um, that are really healthy and I think much more equitable and inclusive for uh, these kind of foundational industries that are really important to society. I'm so glad you said that because that is, you know, you are obviously plugged in and, and know what you're talking about. Me, I'm just a guy out here in Boise, Idaho with these thoughts. But, you know, I've really been thinking about that from an agricultural standpoint. It seems like we've had some huge investments come in that have pushed the business model. It's almost like, well, our, our original business model isn't disruptive enough, so we need to become more disruptive so we can raise more money. And it does seem like in some ways, you know, in some cases, the revenue is sort of driving that business model. 
Um, have we seen that in other industries in the past and kind of, you know, does that ever work? I guess is ultimately my question. Yeah, I think, you know, you see that in a lot of industries right now. And I think even what you're seeing in some of the pushback against the large incumbent um, tech companies like Facebook that, that, you know, originally used to say, uh, move, move fast and break things. You know, they've learned that those move fast and break things mentalities is not always the best, right? There are, there are side effects to that that are not always great. And, it, and you can't move fast and break things in ag, right? You can't move fast and break things in education. You can't move fast and break things in healthcare. Um, that you really have to uh, think about these heavily regulated kind of societally foundational industries as, as crucial uh, pillars of our of our economy and our society, and that they should be treated as such. And so the the adoption speeds, and particularly I think in agriculture, uh, you know, where you have farmers making you know two two million plus farmers, um, the average farm size something like four hundred acres. That each of those farmers are making decisions about what they know of their crops, their rotations, their soil, their geography, their local community culture, their customers, their inputs. Um, that those decisions are quite complicated and are are not able to be um, you know, di- kind of dictated quickly by somebody based in San Francisco or somebody based in Boston or New York. That they really, you really need um, uh, entrepreneurs and companies that are willing to do the hard work of knowing the farm community, um, supporting farmers, not to just think about the process as another input, but to really think about the financial sustainability of those small small farms and the environmentally sustainable environmental sustainability of the product. You know, obviously the VC model, um, a lot of people are trying to get VC money because it does have a pretty clear model. Like, hey, you go, you raise a bunch of money, you get enough traction, you exit somehow. Um, To build more of these sustainable businesses that that aren't going to necessarily be uh, disruptive, but they are going to help you know us evolve. They're going to help us move forward. What what could the model potentially look like so that somebody with a good idea that has a decent sized market but is not going to disrupt the whole food system can get some traction? Yeah, I think you know it's it's a great question, and I think it starts um, in two places. I think it's it starts with looking for entrepreneurs in new places. It starts with looking for entrepreneurs that come from the heartland that come from communities like Eagle Idaho, right? That come from communities where they know the products firsthand, that they, uh, they've they had lived experience of knowing and trusting and working on farms. And so I think that that's the first thing is I think you have to have equitable and democratic access to entrepreneurship. Um, and I think we, we, we try to do that pretty heavily, but I, there are plenty of others as well. And then I think the second piece is certainly that, that equitable and, and more democratic access to capital. So capital, the model of venture capital, again, is going through a real... Um, is going through a real re- revolution right now, um, and uh, that you have you have alternative investments happening. We actually put out a report just recently on all the different things happening in alternative investment. Um, from uh, what NDVC, you, you might hear if you Google NDVC, you'll see really creative new uh, term sheets that are being created out there that are a combination of venture capital and revenue share, and give, pr- provide all kinds of new options for for founders. You have lots of uh, investors like. Uh, companies like RevUp that we work with that, that work on a revenue-based kind of revenue sharing model. So they have to really work with the founder to create uh, that growth organically and allow them to grow at, at a pace that's more kind of traditional. And, and, and uh, thankfully, you know, even organizations like Village Capital that we, we have a lot of creativity in how we invest and try to do that more democratically. Um, so I think those two sides, that, that reducing barriers to entrepreneurship and reducing barriers to to capital that's more inclusive and equitable, I think ultimately leads to more inclusive and equitable product development. And from from the investment standpoint, if an investor has has a thesis, 
uh, such as, you know, okay, the food system, there's a lot of problems, interesting problems to solve in, in the food system. I'm not, I'm not from uh, the food system, let's say, but I want, I want to go deploy some capital there. What, what happens as far as educating uh, oneself as an investor about the industry that you're going into? What's that process normally look like? And uh, are there good resources out there for investors that might be interested in getting into an industry like agriculture without that background? Sure. I think, you know, I think there's, there's lots of ways. I think we spend a lot of time in our process. What we do is we build an advisory board of folks that come from a broad array of, of components of the industry. So um, I think that most venture capital groups or most investment groups typically go through some kind of thesis development process like that as well. And so, you know, we're, we're talking to a lot of larger corporates in the space, a lot of larger providers, uh, a lot of, a lot of farm associations, uh, working with the American Farm Bureau, working with uh, different associations like the Farm for the Fresh Produce Association, others where we can learn from what's happening in the industry. We, we, we've worked with uh, even you know, many different researchers. I think we, we worked quite a bit with the USDA here in DC on learning what's happening in the business models of farms and generally what the trends are happening in that space. So I think, uh, I think it's, a, it's a matter of trying to just um, listen more than speak in an industry as complex um, and as important as, as ag, and to try to uh, hear a lot of disparate voices. Uh, obviously, um, what's happening in the farm community right now is, uh, is quite complex. There, there are a lot of moving parts, and we don't want to presume that we know the right answer. But we, we, what we do know is that we can create a system where entrepreneurs that come from farm communities um, that know those answers better than we can, uh, can be the answer. So uh, that lived experience mindset is really core to what we do. Um, and so we really mostly focus on creating systems that, that allow entrepreneurs from non-traditional spaces um, like the ag community to create, uh, to create solutions that they know can work and will work uh, and providing them a platform to do so. And, and how do you find those people? I, I think that's one thing, you know, you, you notice like with angel networks, they tend to focus on their local community because deal flow, when you spread it across some of these more obscure areas, um, it, it probably gets a little bit more difficult to, to get connected with them. So how do you find those people and, and, uh, and kind of sort through what a good opportunity might be for you in, in let's say, you know, a, a small rural Midwestern town? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's something that um, we spend a lot of time doing. And I, you know, I wouldn't say that there's uh, a perfect science to it. It's a little more than art, art than science, where I think we spend an awful amount of time uh, really making sure that we are, um, we're, we are present in those communities. We actually go out on the road and we host events and we get to know and we stay involved and trusted by partners all around the country. So we have networks of hundreds of entrepreneurial support organizations, um, many of which who use our curriculum or our, our tools in some way um, that have deep, deep knowledge in their own communities. And so we really, we, we don't want to kind of parachute into a community and um, be the answer from outside. We really do trust local partners. So um, our pipeline is very based around that kind of methodology that we, we reach out to hundreds of entrepreneurial support organizations, uh, colleges and universities across the country in the ag space, extension networks, um, uh, farm associations and communities, cooperative organizations, organizations like Farm Credit that, are, that really have a good handle in some areas of the country on the future of, of the, the farm community. Um, and, uh, and just really ha have an open process. And it takes many, many months, um, typically for our process to identify, um, the best entrepreneurs. And, and then we internally go through a screening process to, to pick the ones that we think are most ripe for our process that where we can really help them at their, their, where they are in their model. 
um, and and we go from there. But I think that really is about um, is about staying present and staying connected into the the markets at the local level. And and if somebody's out there and they're and they're growing their business, serving their local community with with whatever the the needs and the problems are there locally. Um, and this is going to be a, a, a probably a tough question, so maybe you could take this in, in whatever direction you think might be most useful. But you know, how does one know when it's time to to pour more fuel on the fire, as they say, and really try to grow and scale versus kind of taking more of the calculated, uh, deliberate growth um, sort of approach? Well, I think the the first thing um, that most entrepreneurs need to know is specifically what they need to be working on, and. And I think what we have learned over the years is that there's there are a lot of times that um, companies will meet with investors uh, and the investor will say, you're too early. Um, but that too early means something very different uh, for every investor that they talk to. So we actually uh, have spent many years working on building a, a milestone-based assessment level structure, a structure that actually a tool that entrepreneurs can use to identify when they're ready for investment um, and specifically what kind of non-investment milestones they need to be focusing on beforehand. So you can actually uh, see that. We just launched it actually this week. Um, it's, it's at abaca.app, so A-B-A-C-A dot A-P-P. Uh, and any entrepreneur can go in there and actually self-assess their their organization where they are at, the, at their growth cycle, and it helps them really focus on the right milestone. So before they need investment, they might really be needing to focus on uh, just having much more understanding of the problem that they're trying to solve, or specifically the consumer pain point that they're working through, or uh, or what their business model really is at the end of the day, or, or what that next hire is going to be. Um, and so there are lots of other things that businesses uh, that that founders should be working on that it, it's not just capital. Um, and ultimately, if the product is not an excellent product that really is solving a key customer pain point and, and creating value in the world, then not all the, all the capital in the world is not going to help you um, be a good company. Hmm. And and uh, we talked to Alex when we had her on the program this past fall about about the accelerator program itself. Um, now, I, I want to make sure that if anybody's listening, that might be a good fit to reach out to you about that. Um, we, we can identify those people and they can do so. So maybe explain a little bit more about what types of companies should reach out to Village Capital specifically um, so that if, if there's any that happen to be listening, we can make sure we connect you to. Yeah, we, we look for companies that are early stage. So in, in the venture parlance, it would be seed stage companies. So um, pretty early companies that have high potential for growth and that are making a, a, a positive societal impact in an industry like agriculture or, and, and a few others. Um, but for, for your listeners, if you are a company that is an early stage company that maybe has uh, done a, have brought on a little bit of capital, or maybe they haven't raised any money before, but they're really just trying to work through their, their business model and product market fit and other kind of validation of their, their thesis as an organization, um, they would be a great fit for our for our uh, accelerator. So uh, they can reach out to me uh, directly uh, through Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, we can also, they can shoot us an email through info at billcap.com um, and we can get them into our, our pipeline. Okay, good. I'll, I'll make sure that we include that info in the show notes too so they can have that reference. And But I'm not done yet. I, I hope you still have a little bit more time because I've got some more questions here. Um, I, I want I want to get back to kind of the, the disruptor conversation that we started with a little bit. And, and you know, one thing that I think about uh, just from an agricultural perspective is that with this huge influx we've seen in ag tech and investment, uh, is, is there a point at which, you know, um, all this money comes in and there's not big enough exits uh, that, that sort of the investment community loses interest in the food sector completely? And are, are, should we be at all worried about that? 
I don't think we should be worried about it, but I think it is something to recognize that there are always um, there are always cycles in investment. I think when you look back into the early 2000s, the the big focus on on energy there was a huge growth in venture activity and energy, and then after the over the next couple of years, that it really kind of focused and it found its footing a bit, and you saw a decline from like 20% of venture deals were um, done in in alternative energy in some way down to you know more nominal number, I think something close to five or 10% at this point. Um, so I think you. You'll see these big boom and bust cycles in industries, and I think largely in the ag space, you know, consumer demand is really driving this. Consumers, um, I think, want to uh, have access to healthy foods, and they want to know where those foods are grown, and they also want to know that those foods don't have a disproportionate negative impact on on the environment. Um, and so, I think what we're seeing is this real rise in con- consumer awareness of the agricultural industry. And I think what comes with that is capital and interest in, in, in often in disruption. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I think, um, I think we, we're going to see the industry, uh, the venture industry or the investment industry, um, find its footing, find its focus, uh, and look to, uh, to, to solve that consumer pain point of, of knowing more about their food and, and having access to that healthy food in, in a way that's sustainable uh, and to, to really fix farm profitability. Um, I think that's one thing we're really eager to to work on in our program is um, what what does all this technology mean for uh, the average small and medium sized farmer? How can we help that that farm be financially sustainable and help them be environmentally sustainable? Um, that that you know all the inputs in the world, um, if it's not improving those two outputs uh, for them, those two outcomes, um, that's that's uh, that's not a good thing for the farm. That's not a good thing for food. That's ultimately not a good thing for the consumer. Um, so I, we hope and we think that that the investment world will um, kind of centralize its thesis a little bit and, and really uh, identify where, where they're creating value and, and move away from um, some of these other spaces. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of farmers would agree with that. You know, hey, we've we've adopted this new technology and with commodity prices being where they are, uh, we are a lot less profitable than maybe we were five or six you know years ago uh, just due to some of those commodity swings. Uh, before I let you go completely here, though, I'm just curious on your take. As you look forward, obviously the farm profitability issue being the one you just mentioned, and we will also link to this uh, sustainable food systems uh, PDF that that they could go download. But but what problems and or solutions get you excited uh, about what's to come for the agriculture industry? Yeah, I'm I'm excited about uh, about the application of technology to small and medium farms really to drive that, that uh, the business model of farms to work again and to have that, that small farm be able to be uh, sustainable environmentally. I think those two things uh, continue to stick out to me. And I think the other thing is that we, we have, there's a lot of interest in uh, the, the farm economy as it's the backbone of, of the American economy, um, that the supply chain um, and the way that food moves to consumers um, is in is in need of kind of radical innovation. So I think we see that uh, there's a lot of good work happening in in supply chain, moving food to table, um, and and all of the things beyond the farm gate. Also, that I think is uh, is just ready for a lot of good investment, a lot of good innovation, and we see more energy there that's getting us excited. So um, those two things really helping that small farmer uh, work again and be able to make money and have a sustainable farm and and how we get that food out to the consumer in a way that's uh, both environmentally conscious and also um, get some healthy food on time. That's those two things uh, are exciting to us. Matt, thank you so much for your time here. It's been really refreshing to to have someone from the investment community on, especially someone who's looking at ag from such a pragmatic and and I would say coherent uh, standpoint. So thank you. I really really appreciate your time here today. Thanks so much, Tim. It was a pleasure. 
Hey, thank you so much to Matt for being on the show. And, and for those of you who've listened, um, one of my favorite aspects about doing this show is the fact that I get to hear from so many smart people <laughs> that listen. Oh, I, I don't know if I'd say daily, but for sure weekly, I get messages either on Twitter and LinkedIn or email or uh, some form of social media about uh, being a listener to the show and, and either an idea or feedback or response to an episode we've had in the past. So please keep that up. If, if I've heard from you, thank you so much. Would love to hear more from you. If I haven't heard from you, please reach out at any time. Um, and I, I'd especially love to hear your perspective on this, sort of your thoughts on um, investors in, in agriculture and ag tech and kind of how that might generate ag innovation uh, that could be very much aligned with the needs of the industry, uh, but also could not be depending on kind of the perspective the investor might have going into it, but also alternative forms of funding for ag innovations that may not fit the venture capital model. Anyway, that's where my head's at. I, I, I hope some of that in there is helpful to you as well. Um, I have a couple other investment style episodes planned for, for the next couple months or so. So anyway, love to hear from you either uh, on Twitter at Tim Hamrich or Tim at aggrad.com anytime. But thank you so much for your time, your attention, and your interest in making the world a better place your ag innovation. We'll be back next week. Hope you'll join us. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week.